And welcome to our very first episode of Chatting with Chaz. I am so excited you're here with me today. Sitting on this couch, it is a dream come true. I've thought about this moment. I've thought about a way to connect on a higher level with you, a more intimate level. And I've dreamed about this. And I cannot believe that, again, another dream has come true. This podcast is a place where we can meet like girlfriends, sitting on the couch, having a cup of coffee, and chatting about all the things. Some of you may never have heard of me or met me before. I am Chaz. I'm the founder and creative director of Linen and Flax Co. Linen and Flax Co. was once a dream like today and now a reality. It is a brand that was birthed out of the love and passion for design, the love of home and the love of my three kids. They truly were my inspiration. I have three children, Riley, Jacqueline, and Christian. You'll meet more and hear more about them in future episodes, but they truly were the inspiration of this amazing brand. Here we are today. Again, you've met me maybe on stories and Instagram or at a live event that we've hosted in Roswell, Georgia. You'll hear more about that in future episodes. But the point of even creating a live event was I wanted to connect on a more personal level. And today, that's what I intend to do with our podcast and future episodes to connect more, to talk about all the things from sharing recipes to wellness. A lot of you know, I've been on this wellness journey and I have learned so much about myself and you too, you've learned a lot about yours and we've been on it together. We're going to talk about everything from lipsticks to how do you find the perfect bra? We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about dating. I've done it all. A lot of you know that. We are going to talk about everything. And I felt like, although we had a party going on on our page at Linen and Flax Co., which if you're not following us there, you should, because it is quite the party, but I can't really go to the level I want to go. I mean, I want to go like work girlfriend during my living room and we're talking about everything. No question can't be asked. Nothing will not be said. We're going to go there. Um, and I want to start with stories. You know, I am a storyteller. You know, my kids would say that anyone that knows me, my friends, the closest people to me would say, oh my goodness, you have the best stories. And I think the reason they say that is because I have some pretty incredible stories, some that you wouldn't even believe. And today I'm going to tell you one of those stories. It's a story that is a difficult story for me to tell, and you'll have to bear with me as I share it. But it is the story that really changed everything in my life. It changed the course of my life. It changed the way I think about things. It changed me. And it was a traumatic time in my life. It was a a season that lasted, well, really until this day, but really that season that changed me lasted about three and a half years. And it was a story of abuse. It was a story about um, someone coming into my life in a very intimate way and really um, changing me and abusing me. And we're going to talk about that. And again, like I said, leading up to this moment, I've never been able to share that. It didn't feel appropriate to share these things in stories, but I wanted to share it again, like on a couch with my girlfriends, with my friends and, and kind of go in an intimate way. But before I dive into the story that changed everything, I want to tell you a little bit about my personal story growing up, a little about about where I'm from, a little bit about my family, and just a little bit more so you understand how something like that, that you're going to hear, could happen to someone like me. So let's start with my parents. My parents um, met and married in West Virginia. 
and they fell in love. They were young. They eloped. They they were ready to start their story, their path, their life. So they decided to leave West Virginia and take off to this beautiful, charming town in Connecticut. And it was a beautiful town called Fairfield, Connecticut. And I don't know if you've ever been, but if you haven't, you need to. It, it is one of my favorite places. I would say, even though my childhood, you know, had its had its highs and lows, I would not change where I lived and where I was raised. It was absolutely perfection. Picture a charming historic town with a beautiful, sleepy, um, quiet neighborhoods that you rode your bike everywhere. There was a beach nearby and at night I could hear the foghorn in the distance. It would lull me to sleep. You know, picture people stopping by on the porch and hearing about the day, talking about, you know, who won the Yankee game. That was Fairfield, Connecticut. Anyone from the sergeant of the police port, uh, the police force would stop by and say hi to my parents, to the neighbor bringing a freshly cooked pie. It was pretty much perfection. So that's a little bit about the area that I'm from. I will also say because it is this beautiful, charming coastal town, I feel like that has really inspired my design aesthetic. You know, I love coastal design, light, airy, beautiful. That was a lot about where my environment was and how I was raised and where I was raised. So you'll hear more about that later when we dive into design in a future episode. So let me tell you, my parents move to Fairfield, Connecticut, this perfect town. They find this old farmhouse that was really in need of some major love. So they decide to rent this because that's what they could do. They were a young couple just trying to make it. They land there. They get this house. They decide they're going to have a little boy and out comes my oldest brother. I'm one of three kids. I'm the youngest. My oldest brother, he's seven years older than me, Robert. And he is an, he's one of my dear friends. He's a great brother. I always looked up to him. I always admired him. And, you know, he was, he was ahead of me. So he would have the big parties in our backyard and have all his friends over. And I just thought he was the coolest. So that's my older brother. I still think he's the coolest. Then I have a sister. She's the middle child, Bobby. And she is uh, probably my best friend, one of my best friends. And growing up, she was in adulthood. She is, and she really was one of the voices in my life that helped me get through really hard things, hard things that we'll talk about. I mean, I've been through all the hard things in my young years. I think it's made me resilient in my older adult years. There's been a lot of hard, but we'll hear more about that. So my sister has helped me in a lot of those seasons in my life. And then there's me, the youngest of three, just, uh, I was kind of the kid that was just, my dad would always say, she's just, is always happy. You know, my mom, my grandmother would say, you're like a breath of fresh air. That's who I was. I was just the happy kid, go lucky kid, anything goes kind of kid. My father would always say that smile kid will get you everywhere to smile and look pretty. That was a quote that he would say often. And although well-intended, you will hear later how it affected my confidence and my value and my worth, where truly I felt like that was the best thing I had to offer was smile and look pretty. And I really didn't know who I was. And, and you'll see more and hear more about that. So we're in Fairfield, Connecticut. My parents get this great house that needed a lot of love. And so my dad had a job as a factory worker in Fairfield, actually in Westport, the next town over. And he um, would work really hard in the day. And at night he would come home and he would work on our house and he would renovate it. Now he was not a skilled carpenter, but he learned because he was the one that had to do it. They couldn't hire anyone. So he would learn. He would go to Home Depot and ask a lot of questions. He'd go to the hardware store. He would buy books. And he was always learning and, and kind of teaching himself how to renovate our home. 
You know, our home didn't have heat and AC. We had a couple fireplaces that would keep us warm in the wintertime. And we had fans in our windows in the summertime. And it was just, it needed, like I said, a lot of love. So it didn't have insulation. So my dad was ripping down old plaster walls and putting in insulation on weekends. There was always a project at my house. My parents, I never saw them sit a lot. They didn't sit. They were always working. Now, while my father was working and renovating our home, he would kind of take me along to just kind of amuse me. I love my dad. Uh, till this day, we're very close. And I just liked being his sidekick. I liked being around him. So whether he was pulling plaster out of the walls or, you know, taking um, wood out of the house from the ceiling and loading it in his dump truck, I was kind of right there with him. I think, you know, I recall him even giving me his tool belt and I would put the tool belt on and I would feel like, you know, we'd call him Bob the Builder. I'd feel like Bob the Builder. I was so excited. So, Anyway, on Saturdays, we would take a lot of the garbage and trash that came from the house that he would do, you know, in the evenings after work, and we would take it to the dump on Saturdays. And I remember those days so well because it was kind of a special time for he and I. You know, we load in his pickup truck. It was full of trash and debris. And then we'd head to the local dump and we would um, empty the trash. And it was like, I just felt like I was helping him and we were doing something great. And then we'd drive back and we'd hit the 7-Eleven. He'd get a big gulp and I would get a Slurpee. And then we'd finish our way home. And at the stop sign right before you got to my house, he'd say, all right, jump up on my lap. I'd jump on his lap and I'd ride the pickup truck home into the driveway. And it was such a great day with my dad. Again, just helping him, working alongside of him, being his little sidekick. So as I recall all of those moments of working with him in the house or just watching him work really most of the time, I think I fell in love with renovations and design and I could see how you could create something out of nothing. I mean, truly the house was nothing to look at, but then my dad, you know, I remember he put this backsplash in our kitchen and I'm like, wow, it really changed our kitchen and it made me so happy. Or when my mom painted the brick fireplace that was really red and dirty looking from, you know, past winter fires and she would paint it white. And I was like, wow, I really enjoyed the environment. I enjoyed design as a kid. I enjoyed moving furniture around with my mom. I remember working with my dad and I feel like that's why I'm so comfortable in the element of a renovation or a new build or just moving furniture. I, I just do it all the time. So um, that's a little bit about my influence. Also, one of the things that my parents influenced me was um, with their work ethic. They both worked really hard. Like I said earlier, I never saw them just laying around watching TV. That's not what happened. They were always working. Unless there was a Yankee game on or Jackie Gleason, my dad was up on his feet doing something and my mom was too. Always cooking in the kitchen or inviting people into her home. My mom had the gift of hospitality. I do believe I got that same gift. I love people and she did too. She loved all the people and they would come into our home all the time. Our house in the neighborhood was kind of like swinging doors. That was kind of what people would say. That's the house with the swinging doors and people would come and go, whether it was the police sergeant or it was the high school principal or secretary, there was always someone in our house and it was always full of love and always full of noise. And, and it's just what I'm used to. Until this day, I kind of am a little bit like that as well with my kids. So I will tell you how maybe her gift of hospitality was also a blessing but a curse. And we'll get into that later. But it was something familiar to me that if someone was in our home, they were safe and they were good. And that was something that I always thought until it wasn't. So now you know a little bit about my parents. They're hard workers. They're doing it themselves. 
my mom decided my dad's working so hard in this home and renovating it. And she wanted to partner with him and she wanted to help him. And up until this point, she was a stay-at-home mom and she was on a walk one morning. She walked every morning, another thing that I've learned from her. And she would walk with her friend and neighbor. And on one of those walks one morning, they decided, listen, we live in a really affluent area and a lot of these moms just need a break and they just want to go alone to the store or they want to go shopping or they want to go to New York. New York was about 40 minutes away. So we were very close to New York. Um, and, and they just decided, I think we could have a business here. So they launched deserving moms. That was the name of it. I had to pause for a second and they decided they're going to have a daycare service. My mom, you remember how I said the gift of hospitality, she would open our home and she would invite children in all ages from kids in playpens to toddlers to school age kids. They were all the ages. So they decided they're going to do this. They got these black sweatshirts. They got a puff pen out. They wrote deserving moms on the sweatshirt. And now the business is launched. Well, it grew quickly. I mean, by in no time, we had playpens all over our house. We had uh, strangers <laughs> sleeping in there and there were kids everywhere. Now, this was a good thing because it was, my mom is now an entrepreneur. She's building a business. She's helping my dad. Now they're being, they're able to do so much more in our house. And that was really what was driving them as they were trying to create home and they were trying to do it within the means that they had. My mom's gift of hospitality, my, my dad's gift with renovating. And he had to create a home that felt safe for kids to be dropped off at. So, they were really working together to make ends meet and do it in a, a way that would create a beautiful home life. So as they did that, again, all these kids are in our home. Now, let me tell you, it's not a big home. It's a small home, three bedrooms, one bathroom. I repeat, one bathroom off the kitchen. Just imagine that. Um, and then my dad decided to add another bathroom in my, in my teen years. And that was like a miracle. That was amazing. But at the time that she was building this business, it was, there was one bathroom, three bedrooms, and a lot of kids. And it really was hard growing up in that environment. It was a little chaotic. There were kids, you know, they screamed. They're, they're babies. It was loud. And I feel like I isolated a lot. And I kind of just went in my room because it was the only place that was quiet and peaceful. And I felt like I kind of withdrew a bit. And I'll talk more about that. But I think, you know, spending a lot of time by myself, um, and isolating from the, the family dynamic was probably not the best thing, but we didn't realize that in that moment. So, okay, now both parents are working. I'm upstairs in my bedroom a lot alone, and I am falling in love with Michael Jackson on MTV. It's circa 1994. I'm in third grade. I have a mad crush. Um, I went to his victory tour. It was everything. I won the tickets from Pepsi. Do you remember that when you'd call into the radio to try to win tickets? You'd spend the entire day doing that. I won. Um, anyway, go like, go with my dad to the Michael Jackson concert. You know, it just became a thing. As I got older, I went to another concert. Michael Jackson was kind of like my person growing up because I was in my room, again, alone, a lot, spending a lot of time, you know, watching all the videos and um, feeling like, I just love him. I thought I did. So there's that little backstory. And that's going to come up again in this story. So now I'm in middle school. Let's fast forward a bit. I'm in middle school. I'm kind of an awkward kid. I spent a lot of time alone. I have a haircut that is a pixie cut, not even a cute one, really bad bangs. 
you know, I've got these broad shoulders. I still do. I still struggle with it to this day. Um, but pixie haircut, broad shoulders, uh, acne, you know, middle school was not a good look. I'm wearing my brother's clothes because again, we didn't have a lot of means growing up. My brother was older than me. He had a job at the local department store. So he would buy clothes and he, um, you know, it was the, it was the time of Benetton sweaters and Ralph Lauren sweaters. And I would just wear his baggy sweaters and think, you know, I look good. It wasn't the best look for me. I was basically dressing like a boy, again, with the short haircut, the acne, and the broad shoulders. So it was not a good time for me. I was also pretty quiet, painfully shy. I know some of you will not believe it. I still struggle with it till this day, but I was painfully shy at that time. And so I just thought I had had enough. You know what? It was time to meet friends, to open my voice, you know, to talk. I always was very quiet and just kind of on the, the, just kind of in the distance, kind of a wallflower. And so eighth grade comes and I'm like, I am going to take matters into my own hand. And I am no longer going to Jimmy, the Barbara barber. I think his name was Jimmy, the barber, the family barber to get my hair cut. I, I protested. I'm like, no, I'm growing my hair out. Now it's summer going into my freshman year. I decide I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to get a tan. I am going to come back with long hair and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get a job so I can buy clothes for the school year because that's the only way that that was going to happen. So I ride my bike to the local CVS. I, I fill out an application. I get a job at CVS. I go every day. And by the end of the summer, I had enough money to go get a wardrobe. It's kind of like one of those movies, right? The awkward girl that shows up. Well, I showed up freshman year and I showed up. I looked like a girl. I felt like a girl. And I, I dug deep to get that personality. Now, my dad, like I said, would always say, just smile and look pretty. People around me always just said, I was effervescent, a breath of fresh air. My grandmother would always say that. And I'm like, I had that personality. It was just buried in my shyness. So I kind of was coming out and I was meeting a lot of friends. I was also the girl that loved people. I loved everybody. I mean, I had a lot of friends, but I had friends from every group. Remember in high school how there were groups? There was like the the meatheads, the metalheads, the burnouts. I loved them all. And they all loved me. I mean, I was that girl holding court in the middle of the, um, the what are they, the, it was in the middle of our high school. The I am drawing a blank, but the courtyard. I was holding court. I was surrounded. I loved, I would tell stories about storyteller about my Michael Jackson concerts. And I'll tell you that story. It's a great story next episode. Cause it's a long one, maybe not next episode, but future episodes. But I was that girl. And I just, I came to life freshman year. Things were looking good. I was using that smile. My dad told me to use, I was using that charm and I felt like I was coming into my own. So now we're approaching, you know, the end of my freshman year. I get asked to go on a date, my first date. Now, remember how I told you my love of Michael Jackson, I was convinced we were going to run off and get married. Well, that didn't happen, but I would not date people that asked me because I said I was saving myself for Michael Jackson. I know it's crazy, but I was convinced. So I finally was asked out on a date and I actually said, yes, he was my first crush. So, um, he came to my house and I remember coming down the stairs. My dad was at the bottom of the stairs. A little tear had come down his face. And he was like, my little girl, I can't believe she's going on her first date. Uh, we get in his grand wagoneer. He drives us downtown to the community theater, drops us off. I'm on my first date. Things are looking good with my big crush. Um, my dad, you know, whenever he would take me to the community theater, not this night, thank God, but um, that was kind of our hangout, the community theater every Friday and Saturday night. That's where you went. That's where you hung out. 
when my dad would drive me, he would drop me off and everyone would be there, like 50, 100 kids. And he'd roll down the window and we'd all just wait for it. And he'd say, who's the most beautiful girl in Fairfield, Connecticut? That's my girl. And he would always say that to the point I'm like, dad, can you just drop me off a block before we get to the theater? I can't handle you doing that. I don't trust you. Um, But he just felt like that was love. And he was so proud of me, but it felt like he was just proud of what I look like. So, um, that doesn't send the most positive message. Now at that time, I'm not thinking that at that moment, but I could see why I allowed things to happen because truly that's all I heard was that smile and those looks and those eyes. And my mom's like, you shouldn't insure those legs. It was all about the physical. And it wasn't like, she is just so smart or, you know, she's so creative. There really wasn't an emphasis, an emphasis on any of that. Let's talk about me as a student. If you had to work hard on a test, I had to work 10 times harder. I struggled academically. It was just not my thing till this day. It's just a struggle. Um, I don't, I wouldn't test well, but in real life, I, I feel like I do pretty good in real life, but not a great student. So that was also coupled with the fact of just smile and look pretty and not thinking I, I was doing or accomplishing a lot academically. I think I kind of pushed into that and leaned into the smiling and look pretty. And I think I felt like, because I struggled so much academically, like, yeah, I probably should focus on this, on the outward. So I smiled to my teachers and I got good grades because they liked me and the principal loved me and my coaches loved me. I played basketball and I just, I got through because I was happy and I was smiling and that was what I focused on. Okay. So now it's freshman year we're approaching summer. I just went on my first date. Like I said, things are looking good. So one of my best friends invited me to a Yankee game. And this is where everything changes. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Fairfield. I told you, told you how charming and beautiful it is and picturesque. And I laid out all the beauty. Another great thing about Fairfield, Connecticut was the location. It was 40 minutes from New York City, like I said earlier, and it was a quick train ride into the city or a quick trip to the Bronx in a car. You were there in 40 minutes at Yankee Stadium or in Manhattan. It was a great location, still is. So we spent a lot of time growing up, jumping on the train, heading into New York, going to look at you know the department stores, windowscapes for Christmas, going to Chinatown for dinner, going to Little Italy. We spent a lot of time in New York. It was very familiar. Um, again, we jump on and off the train. The cute train station in Fairfield till this day is still there. Spent a lot of time there. Very familiar, very easy. Everyone in our town was a Yankee fan. I mean, you were not a Mets fan. You were a Yankee fan through and through. And Yankee games were kind of just part of our life and part of the fabric of that community. So when my girlfriend asked me to go to this Yankee game, it was just, yeah, I mean, it wasn't unusual. Of course we're going to go. And she was super excited because it was her 16th birthday and she had a favorite baseball player and he was the right fielder. And he kind of had a reputation as this right field charmer, great smile and a slugger. So her dad was a huge Yankee fan. So we knew we were going to have great seats, but we didn't know how great. So we go to Yankee Stadium with her dad where we walk in, we start finding our seats. You know, you know, when you're walking into a stadium or a concert, you're like, oh, our seats are good. We're going down. We're going down. We had really good seats. We were front row on right field. So we're like, this is fantastic. Your favorite player where we can talk to him. I think we might even get an autograph. So. He comes out, he takes the field. We're like, oh my goodness, yay. We yell his name and he turns to us and he smiles at us and 
we're thinking this is so cool. Everyone in, in our section is like, oh my goodness, he's talking to you. He's smiling at you. And, and we were excited. And so while we were engaging with him, we said, hey, can we get an autograph? We would love your autograph. And he wouldn't give us an autograph. And then, you know, he'd come out again and we'd start talking. We'd say, hey, can we, can you throw us a ball? And you have to remember like your first row, right field's kind of below you. So we're like looking down at him. We're like, can you throw us a ball? Give us a ball. And he wouldn't give us a ball. He'd pretend he was throwing it up to us, but he wouldn't do it. And they were like, okay, what's he going to do? Can, can we get a glove? I mean, he's definitely engaging here, but he's not doing anything we asked. So this Yankee game was pretty epic because it was a Yankee Red Sox game and Yankee Red Sox games. That's the game. That's the game of the year that you go to is that series. Not only was it Yankee Red Sox, but it was Yankee Red Sox double header. So that's like jackpot. That's like the game of all games. It's summer. It's Saturday. It's a packed stadium and it's the original Yankee stadium also, by the way. So, you know, it's, it's awesome. And now we're talking to this charming right fielder, but he still hasn't given us an autograph. So now game two, we finished the first game, Yankees win. Game two, where he switches fields. So now he's the left fielder. And that was one of his things is that he could play right field. He could play left field. He could also be the designated hitter. He was kind of known as that fourth position slugger. So he moved a lot. So when he moved over to the left field, he was waving to us. Now we're still in right field. He's waving across the field. Now, do you remember a player, Ricky Henderson? Ricky Henderson was the right fielder now, and he starts talking to us and he was a big deal, but he's like, Hey, he's, he's talking to you. And he would direct us across the field. So we're waving and we're like, we just want a baseball. We're telling Ricky Henderson, but he wouldn't give us a baseball. And we were trying to get him to tell the other guy. So long story short, it's seventh inning. We just do the seventh inning stretch. Her dad says, just like everyone who lives in Connecticut, let's beat the traffic and let's head out seventh inning. So we leave. As we leave, the charming right fielder is waving to us. And we don't know because our back is to the field. We're walking up, leaving Yankee Stadium. And everyone in our section who's watched what's happened all day is saying, oh, my goodness, he's waving to you guys. I think he's going to give you the baseball. He never gives the baseball, but he was waving goodbye to us. So now fast forward. We're about two weeks in. We had gone to Yankee Stadium. We, we The game is kind of in our rearview mirror. We're not really talking about it anymore. But while we were in the Fairfield Public Library, which it was kind of like the place to be, is kind of where we socialized, but we were supposed to be studying. So we were there because I think it was June, but it was like our final exam. So we were supposed to be studying for exams, so we were just hanging out and chatting. So in some of our chatting, we were talking about that Yankee game. And we were like, man, can you believe he didn't give us an autograph? I mean, you went there for your birthday. He couldn't even give you an autograph. And so remember my love of Michael Jackson? Well, one of the things I would do as a Michael Jackson fan, and maybe you did this too, it's also the 80s, is you'd get a magazine and you'd find the fan mail and you'd write a, a cute letter and you'd send it to the address for his fan mail. So I, I would send fan mail. I probably did it two or three times. I never got an answer from Michael Jackson, but I would send a letter asking for his autograph. It was kind of what you did. So while we're sitting there at Fairfield Public Library, we're like, you know what? We should just write a letter to him and just say, hey, we were there. We would love your address. Can you please send it to us? She's like, okay, let's do it. We write the letter. She's like, I'll give it to my dad. He'll send it to Yankee Stadium. Great. We have forgotten it. Summer is here. 
We are at the beach. That is what we did. We would load up our boom box with our eight D batteries and we would lug it to the beach and we would stay there from 10 a.m. till sunset. We would listen to Bobby Brown and and practice dance moves from every little step to it's my prerogative. That was summer. That's what we did. It was packed with teenagers. It was awesome. And it was just some of my best memories. So we go to the beach that day and then I come home and I go upstairs. And do you remember when we had your own private line? And that was like an 80s thing or early 90s, 80s things for me. And I had my own private line. And so the phone rang and I answered the phone and this deep voice said, hello. And I said, hello. And he said, this is, let's call him, let's call him Joe. This is Joe. Uh from the New York Yankees. And I'm like, Hey Joe, now you'll probably figure out his name. I'm just not going to go there right now, but Hey Joe. And he's like, this is Joe from the New York Yankees. I hang up the phone because I used to get prank called all the time because of my love and passion for Michael Jackson. People would call me and pretend they were Michael Jackson and kind of prank call me. So I thought someone was just prank calling me. So I hang up the phone, phone rings again. I pick up the phone. He's like, this is Joe from the New York Yankees. Uh, don't hang up. I wanted to see if you'd like to come meet me and come to a baseball game. Well, I had never really talked to guys. Now I'd gone on a date with my friend that I told you about my first crush, but I hadn't really like, I think that was it. We'd see each other at parties and and things like that. And at the beach, but we weren't like dating and we weren't like talking on the phone every day. So like talking to guys on the phone, I had just turned 15, you know, a few months past. It was kind of uncomfortable. So I got nervous. I was like, no, I can't. I'm going away with my family. I hang up the phone. He calls back and he's like, well, why don't you think about it? And I'll call you back. And I'm like, okay. I go downstairs and I'm like, Hey dad, I think Joe from the New York Yankees just called me. And I think that's crazy. How could that be? And he's like, well, he definitely didn't just call you because the Yankees are about to play. I'm about to go turn on the game. And he goes, and he's playing tonight. I just looked at the lineup and he's playing. So there's no way. I don't know who's praying calling you, but he did not call you. I'm like, okay. So I go back upstairs. My phone rings again shortly thereafter and it's him. And he's like, listen, I am, I am Joe from the Yankees and I am going to um, show you. And this is what I'm going to do. When I get up and I come up to bat, I'm going to hit home plate three times. And when I hit home plate three times, you'll see that it's me. I'm like, okay. So I go downstairs. Now my brother's home. My sister, everybody's home. And I'm like, hey, I think this is the guy. I think the baseball player is actually going to call me. And he said he's going to hit home plate three times. And they're like, there's no way. And I'm like, yes. So my dad's like, well, he's the designated hitter tonight. So let's see when he comes up. In the meantime, I went and go pick up my friend, you know, the girl that I went with for the original game. So I'm like, I think he just called and he's going to hit home plate three times. So she's over at my house. We're in the family room. We're all watching the TV, waiting for this moment. He comes up to bat. He stands up at the plate. He takes his position and he does not do anything. And everyone's like, oh, see, someone pranked you. But we're all still watching. And the next, the next at bat, that next pitch he right before the pitch, he hit home plate three times and he pointed at the camera. Now everybody's elated because like I said, we are Yankee fans. My family grew up going to the Yankee game every night. It was on our TV during baseball season. My dad didn't miss. My grandfather loved the Yankees. It was, 
it was just part of our fabric of our family. Every birthday, there was a gift about the Yankees or a gift for my grandfather, a hat, a jacket, a poster, you name it. It was all things Yankees all the time. So we were excited. We we're like, this is incredible. I cannot believe it. He just hit home plate three times. Oh my goodness. He calls and um, now my mom answers the phone and he starts talking to my mom. And then he goes and bats, comes back. After he bats, he calls again. My mom answers the phone. He's chatting with my mom a lot, probably three or four times throughout the evening. The last call, they make the decision. He has invited us to the whole family to a Yankee game the next day. And my mom says, we'll be there. Thank you. We're so excited. He says he'll leave tickets at will call and we'll meet at Yankee stadium, the whole family and my friend. And we're going to get that autograph. So we all pile in the car the next day. We head to Yankee stadium. I even have a picture of me getting the tickets from Will Call. It was a big deal. So we get the tickets. We all take pictures. We're like, oh my goodness. He did say on that call that when we got into the stadium to come to the dugout, because he'd like to meet us. So we get into the stadium. We walk down to the dugout and there he is. And when my father approached him, my father said, just so you know, she's 15 years old. And he said, oh yeah, that's great. You just keep drinking your milk, kid, because there was a commercial at the time. If you drink your milk, it makes your body grow faster. Do you remember that commercial? Like, keep drinking your milk, it helps you grow. So he made that joke. And so we get the autograph. We He gives us a baseball, and it's a moment. We take pictures. I remember he hugs my mother. He hugs my father. He hugs me, my sister, my friend. Charming guy. Super nice oh my goodness, what a great day. It was awesome. We had great seats. We're in Yankee Stadium. It was fantastic. We go home. We think, what a great day. Can't believe that happened to us. And it's the end of the story. The next day, I'm at the beach with girlfriends. Really, remember, like I said, that's what we did. 10 to 6 to sunset, we were at the beach. So now we're at the beach. Me and my friend are recalling the story. We're so excited. But something changed with her. And I think what she noticed at the game is he paid a little bit maybe too much attention on me. And I think it bothered her. And so that day it was kind of like, it was just not good. And we're still friends to this day, but it, that it was just, she, it was just not good. You know, teenage girls, right? Was it me? Was it you? And I'm like, I don't know. I remember going home crying and I think people are making fun of me and it became this whole thing, you know, and it really, it wasn't a whole thing. It was just a Yankee game, but I was upset because of some of the things that were being said. So I go home, I'm crying. My mom sees that. And I'm like, you know, it was just a hard day. Everybody's bringing up the whole story. And it just, it, it's, it's hard. I go up in my room. I'm a teenage girl. I'm 15. I'm in my bathing suit. I have oxy on my face. Cause that's what I did after the beach. Cause I had acne. So I'm putting my white oxy dots all over my face. Do you remember that? And then the next thing, you know, my mom calls me down. She's like, Hey, come downstairs. And as I come downstairs, I see this gray limousine approaching my house, which we didn't see gray limousines in Fairfield, Connecticut. And out comes the slugger. There he is at our house. He had a game that day. And one thing I failed to mention that morning when he had the next morning before I went to the beach, he had called me on my personal line. And he started asking me questions and it made me uncomfortable. And he was asking me what size I was. And he said he wanted to send me some things. And maybe if I could give him my address, he would send me some things. And, um, but when he was asking me about my size, it just made me feel uncomfortable. And I, I think that's some of the things I was talking about at the beach. 
But then he called my mom because I didn't give him my address. And then I think when she was saying I was upset, he came in like a hero, like, oh, let me come see her. So he shows up, the whole family's there. We're kind of like, wow, this is a, this is pretty cool. I was not thinking anything other than this Yankee is at our house. That's pretty cool. So I was thinking one other thing. Remember the boy that I went to the movies with? Well, his favorite baseball player was also this baseball player. And so I said, hey, I need to call him. He loves this guy. He's going to freak out. Or can we go see him and visit him so that he can meet his favorite player? I mean, he was kind of everybody's favorite player at the time. So my mom said, no, he's not here to see him. He's not, we're not going to have him go across town. He's here to see our family. He made it very clear as he came into our life that he needed a family and he almost made it like he was a victim. You know, he had a hard life. There's no doubt. His life is a whole nother story. He had a very difficult childhood and baseball really saved him. Um, He had a very storied past. That's another story. Um, But we didn't know anything about him. He was a perfect stranger other than the fact that we knew he was a good baseball player. So remember how I said my mom's gift was hospitality. Well, she would open her heart and she opened our home. She opened her heart to him because he kind of pulled on our heartstrings about his, his family life, about how people, you know, only wanted him because he was a baseball player and only wanted him because he was wealthy. And, um, his, he would talk about his family and he didn't feel like he had a family because they only wanted things from him. So he had this approach that he was looking for a family. He also had told us right off the bat that he was building a home and um, he was in between homes right now. So my parents, he stayed late that night talking, really spilling his whole, spilling, what's the expression? Spilling the beans, I don't know. Sharing his whole life story. And you kind of had empathy for him. And I know my parents felt that. So they invited him to spend the night. He spent the night that night, but then the next day he came back. And then the next day he came back and then the next day he came back and he spent the night every night, literally from that day on. Now, when he spent the night, you know, in between traveling to go on trips for the Yankees, he was saying that, you know, it was because his house was under construction. We didn't really know much other than that. Um, But soon into this relationship with our family, he would make, um, advances on me when no one was looking. And so I remember one night I was watching a movie and, uh, we were in the family room and I had fallen asleep and my dad was close by in a recliner and he had fallen asleep. And that was the first time that he had decided that he was going to take advantage of me. And as any young girl does, when something like that happens, you pretend you're asleep. And so I just learned if I pretended like I was asleep, it wasn't happening. Gosh, why am I getting upset? So that's what I did for a long time. And then guess what I would do? I would smile and look pretty. And that's how I coped. I would smile and look pretty or I'd pretend to fall asleep. It started happening more often because I think he felt like, well, she's asleep. Uh, I'm not getting caught. And he was doing it right under the eyes of my parents. If they were asleep or they were distracted, he also was very manipulating. He was, he was a manipulator. He's a master manipulator, but he's also, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, you could do a case study on this guy, but he, um, 
he was very controlling. And so from the get-go, he didn't want me to go to the beach anymore. So I remember one summer morning, there was all this noise in our backyard and bulldozers. And I'm like, what's going on? And my mom says, I don't know. And she calls him and he's putting in an underground pool in our backyard because he doesn't want me to go to the beach anymore. But it's Connecticut. It's what we do. It's how I lived. I was not in a relationship with this person. Again, I was just sleeping. Um, I didn't like this person, but my family did. And everybody did. People were coming by to get his autograph, whether it was a police officer or the high school principal, he was charming. He had a way about him. And that was his, that was his cover. So, um, now there's a pool in our backyard. He is, I, I don't drive yet. He one day calls and says, look out the window and look behind the limousine. And he was sending the limousine to pick me up to take me to Yankee Stadium because he had he went earlier because you had to get there earlier if you're a player. But I had to go to every game. It was like a thing. And so the limousine was coming to pick me up and my parents, they would go to every game and sometimes my sister and my brother. And it became the routine. And behind the limousine was a car. And because I couldn't drive the car, you know, we gave it to my dad. And then he bought another car and another car. And he was just showering with gifts. And he was just, uh, you know, I'm going to take care of your family and your, your brother and your sister. And you have to trust me. And I didn't trust him. And I believe that I innately knew he was not good because I knew what was happening when no one was looking. But then he started twisting things as master manipulators do. And then he would say, listen, I am the only one that really cares about you because I'm sure everyone knows what I'm doing but I'm the one that cares about you. Cause now I stopped pretending like I was sleeping. Cause I started crying when it would happen. Cause it would hurt. Um, and so he knew I was awake and now a relationship is starting. I'm going back to high school. He starts buying me things with his number on it, jewelry with his name on it. And he wanted me to go into high school and wear this very flashy jewelry with his name and his number. And I didn't want to wear it. And he was really angry. And he's like, look at everything I do for your family. But I, I didn't ask him. My family didn't ask him. This was his control. This was the way he got in. And so I did as he said, because it was just easier. And then as he would remind me that everyone knows what's happening Truly, I love you. You know, this was destiny. He would, he said it from the first day he came to my house. It was destiny that he opened that letter and he knew that I was supposed to be with him because he would never open fan mail. He never opened it, but he just out of curiosity opened the one letter that fell out of this box that he was going to throw in the trash. So he just believed to his core that this was destiny and you could not shake it. And then he convinced me that, that he was right. I didn't believe him for a long time. So now I'm in a relationship where I think I do love him. Now it's a mutual relationship. Bad things are still happening. You know, I would ask him not to. And you have to remember, or you have to know this. I was not raised as a Christian. We did not uh, go to church. You know, Fairfield, Connecticut, you're either Catholic or you're not, you know? And I never was invited to church. So I didn't have a relationship with God. But there was something in me that knew that this was wrong. And there was something in me that felt, like, even though I felt like maybe he does love me and I started believing it, maybe he does, maybe he's the only one that does, but it felt wrong. So I would say, can we just not be physical until we get married? Cause I just feel like it's wrong. And I, I would struggle with it. And then do you remember when, um, I think it was magic Johnson and he came out and he said he had, he had AIDS 
And I was afraid of AIDS. It was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. I didn't really trust this person either. I would tell you he had a storied past. And by knowing him now two, three years, I knew that every hotel we went to with my family, that there were groupies or women yelling at him. I knew that there were phone calls coming in the bedroom. I did not trust him, but I never could catch him. So I would say these things that I felt that I don't trust you and I don't want to have sex with you and I don't believe you and I, I don't want to get AIDS. And he would convince me that it was all in my head and, you know, you're crazy and I love you and all these things. So I, um, I continued to have the relationship with him, but it was always a problem. So what he decided to do is we're going to get engaged. We got engaged very quickly. And then he wanted to get married as soon as I turned 18. So that was kind of the path. Now let's fast forward a bit. We're in Fairfield, Connecticut. This is odd. Although he, he is basically living with us. And, um, I'm now with him my sophomore year, my junior year. He went to my prom, one of them with me. He felt like when he had to leave to go to spring break, that it was um, bad luck. So my senior year, going into my senior year, he makes the call. Listen, you need to come to Fort Lauderdale because I didn't have a good spring break last year. He was very superstitious and he's like, you need to come and be with me. So my entire family leaves Fairfield, Connecticut and goes to South Florida and we get a family home with him. He gets this house. My parents keep the home in Fairfield and we rent that out to a university, to university students. We lived in Fairfield. There's Fairfield university. They rented out the house. My parents didn't want to give up the house, but yes, they weren't going to let me go. I was not married. I was not 18. We're going to all go to South Florida. They also kind of lost their businesses because you couldn't have a daycare service with this athlete living in your house, sleeping on your family room floor. So my mom lost her business. My dad had to change jobs. It was just some people were just like, what is going on? So now we're in South Florida and it got more abusive because his control became more intense and it would become, you know, it's my senior year. We're in Parkland, you know, Stoneman Douglas um, that was like the first year it had opened. And that was where I was a senior. And I was so excited. He was still in New York because the season was still going on. So I got to be like a normal high school student for like the first month. And I was so excited. And I didn't tell anybody about this relationship. And it wasn't about this person and the Yankees. It was just about me being a high school student. I felt like I could be like a high school student. And I felt like that was kind of robbed and taken away from me. So, um, it was great. The first month or two, I was going to football games. It felt like I was a high schooler and I had the time of my life. And then he came and then he would have to pick me up at every, every day after school, drop me off at school. But he was so overprotective that if I came out in the morning and I was in shorts, cause it's 90 degrees in South Florida, I would be locked in the closet until I changed and put on pants or an appropriate t-shirt because he didn't want anyone to see me. If we went in public, which was very rare because he thought if someone looked at me, he'd have to kill them. Um, he, we didn't go out much. So he was super protective. And really the only thing and influence I knew was within our four walls. It was him and it was my family and everyone seemed fine with it. So I felt like, I guess this is normal, but there was something still in my soul. Again, I didn't have a relationship with God, but I feel like God was speaking to me and I felt like it was wrong. I just felt like I don't want to get married. And I knew that timeline was coming. I had just turned 18. The season when it was over, we were talking about getting married and I thought, I got to get out of this. Now, 
spring training is over. But before it's over, there's one more game and it was senior skip day. So I go to senior skip day and all uh, it's senior skip day. And the friends that I've made now, they all know about him because he makes himself known. And they're like, hey, for senior skip day, let's all go to the Yankee game. So the one game I went to in spring training was that game. When I was at that game, he was, again, very possessive. He came out of the stands and he made sure, you know, everybody knew I was with him. And then um, while I was there, and we'll hear more about this later in future episodes, there were two people in the stands that were watching. And one was a pastor at a church in Fort Lauderdale and his wife. And they saw what was going on. And he was the pastor for the Yankees at the time. And when he was in the clubhouse, he met this character. And he said he was very charming and charismatic was the word he used for him. But when he met him, he was talking about his girlfriend and people were making the joke that yes, he met his fiance now at Toys R Us because of my age. Something I failed to mention, I was 15 when I met him and he was 28. So there was a 13 year age difference. Um, The Yankees knew about it. My high school principal knew about it. The sergeant of the police force knew, knew about it. Everybody knew about it. We were written about in the New York Post. We were on the back page of the Post. My prom picture was circulating in the Yankee yearbook. Everyone knew about it, but no one said it was wrong. There was one person, and this is an interesting story. I'm Now uh, spring training's over. The pastor sees me, hears about me. Spring training's over. When spring training is over, he has to go back to New York, which means I have to go back to New York. So it's April. I don't graduate until June. So I have to make a decision. And the decision really wasn't mine. The decision was you're coming back to New York and we're going to get married. So you don't need a diploma. You don't need an education. I got you. You're my girlfriend. You're my wife. And I will take care of you. You don't need that. I really wanted to graduate. I mean, I've been in school for 12 years. I've got two months. But with his prodding and his blessing, Um, And my mother's blessing. My mother did not want to stay with me. My dad had to go back. There's a whole nother story there. My sister is older. She's back in Connecticut. Remember, we still have the family home there. Everyone's back in Connecticut and it's me and my mom. And my mom's like, I don't want to be here anymore. Now her and my dad are going through their own marital issues because you could imagine what inviting this person into our home does to a man when now this other person's running the home. There's so much y'all and there's so much we'll talk about, but they're going through their own issues, my mom and dad. So she wants to get back to Connecticut because she needs to work on her marriage, but I need to work on graduating. We decided we're going back to New York. So I did not graduate high school and you'll hear how that really challenged me as well and changed me. So we go back to New York. Now we're living in, we have the family home in Connecticut, but he gets an apartment in Trump tower. So now we're in Trump tower, you know, high in the sky and my brother is living there with me because my parents said she still has to be with someone from our family. Um, but they were going back to work on their marriage, also refresh the family home because they rented out all year. In the summer, we would have the house to fix it up for the next renters. So they were working on the house. I'm in New York because I have to go to every baseball game because that's how it is. And my brother is there as well. So while we're in New York and Trump Tower, we meet Donald Trump. And he lived on the same floor as us. And he has an, this is interesting. This is interesting. So we have lunch with him a few times. 
one time particularly, we go to the Plaza Hotel, which is where this Yankee baseball player wanted to get married. So we go to the Plaza for lunch. We're with Donald Trump and Marla Maple. Marla Maples. Do you remember him and Marla Maples? They were all over the New York Post. It was a whole thing. He was just coming out of a divorce and he was larger than life. And he was also super kind. So we go to the Plaza Hotel. We're having lunch. He's asking questions. He's asking about us. He loved baseball. He loved the Yankees because everybody did. I remember at that lunch, Marla wanted a bathrobe and she kept saying, Donald, you have to get me the bathrobe from the plaza. I think he was losing the plaza in his divorce. That was kind of a tricky thing. He ended up getting her a bathrobe and also myself brought me a huge white box with a pink ribbon and the most amazing bathrobe. And it really was everything she said it was. But he was generous and he was kind. We walked back to Trump Tower after lunch and he was great. He really liked this baseball player and they would spend time together. Sometimes we'd end up in his apartment eating a cheeseburger on a night that, you know, after a Yankee game and he's sitting on boxes because he didn't have any furniture. I mean, it was amazing. Um, but he was, he was kind. So one day, um, the baseball player is at the stadium. The one day I'm telling you, it was one day that I went out because I wanted to go to express and get a new shirt. So I walked down West 57th street. I went to express as I walked out of express. Who do I see? Donald Trump again, larger than life, Mr. New York. And he comes up to me he's like, Hey, how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. How are you? And he's like, good. He goes, are you really getting married? Are, are you guys getting married like this, this fall? And I said, yeah, I, I think so. And he said, is there anything I could do for you? Like, do you need help getting out of this? Like, where are your parents? He didn't know how old I was, but I think he thought this is strange. Something is odd. And he really made me think. And he goes, if you need help, I will help you. You just let me know. You know, he lived down the hall a few doors down. If you need help, but you should not be in this relationship. He's a great guy. But you should not be in this relationship. Out of all the people, you know, I guess he, people say his mouth gets him in trouble, but his mouth really helped me. And it made me think something was wrong because I was the only one that was thinking it. And then hearing one other person say it made me think, okay, I'm not crazy. I remember that night I went back to Trump Tower. I didn't go to the game. It was the one time I didn't go to the game. I knew I was going to get in trouble, but I stayed home and I was sitting on the bed and there was three walls of windows and behind me was the TV and the Yankee game was on because I had to know what he did at every at bat. So I'd get quizzed. So I had the Yankee game on behind me and there's three walls of windows and I'm high up. I think we were like on the 58th floor and I'm kind of in the clouds. And I remember praying if there's a God out there, Will you help me? Because I don't know how to get out. And shortly thereafter, me and my dad started talking and he was going to leave and head to South Florida without my mom. And I said, dad, I'm going to go with you. And he picked me up in New York and we drove to South Florida and we had nothing. We left everything. He left everything. I left everything. We, I packed some clothes and we went to South Florida we got a one bedroom apartment. It wasn't, it was like an efficiency. It was like there was a bed and there was a kitchenette and a little couch and he would sleep on the couch and I would sleep in the bed. And I remember one day I was sitting on a bench and I thought, I just need a job. I mean, I hadn't worked. I'm 18 and a half years old and um, I need to get a job. And that's where we'll pick it up on the next episode. You'll see how I got out of this relationship. You'll see how I got a job at one of the places you would never expect that I had worked, 
but it was a place that I learned a lot and I learned about people and I learned how to stand on my own feet. And from that job to my next job and to today, there's a lot of stories, but you'll see more about how this story changed everything. You'll see how I have a conclusion and how I healed through this story. A lot of healing had to take place, but I didn't even know. I didn't even know how much healing there was and how much work I had to do to get to the other side of this. And we're going to talk about all of that. But until next time on our next episode, episode two, I'll see you here on the couch and we'll dive in more to the story that changed everything. Thanks for joining me today. Talk soon. Talk soon.